Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, long time. You sound so professional again on the opening. (laughs) Not that you don't always, but again, just so professional. And I'm so happy because it looks like Riverside, our platform for recording, changed the countdown from six to five, Rachel. I think you just missed the six, to be honest with you myself. Uh, I don't know, but our guest can confirm. Let me just enjoy my happiness for a moment, please. (laughs) But you did did mention we have a guest today. Yes. Who do we have? Yes. Who is here to to join us and our listener base. Okay, wow. Uh, we've got Bill Evanina. He is founder and CEO of the Evanina Group and former director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center in the office of the Director of National Intelligence. Welcome. Ah, Eric and Rachel, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very humbled to be a part of your podcast and look forward to our uh, you know, very robust discussion. I'm glad she's beyond her speeding ticket rehabilitation <laughs> sessions. So we don't have to get you engaged on that, Bill, but thank you for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> so um, where to start? I mean, Bill, you've had such a, an amazing career. You've been on the, the front lines of, I think, the, some of the most fascinating, intriguing, and horrifying things in the last several, several decades. And um, now you're, you're doing your own thing, too, which is, I, and I'm so excited that you're on the podcast to kind of share with us your insights because um, I don't, I, for those that don't know, I mean, you were in the FBI for what, 24 years and you've gone on and been in counterintelligence for, for decades. And um, just thank you for your service, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to get at. Thank you very much because it's, it's not easy. And um, with that, we'll get into uh, this podcast is going to run in September, even though we're recording it in August to all of our listeners. Late August. Late August. And September is National Insider Threat Awareness Month. Um, Bill, for the benefit of our listeners, could you share a little bit more about that? Sure. And uh, again, thanks for even recognizing the fact that September is National Insider Threat Awareness Month. Every month has an awareness of something and some months more than others have plenty of them. Uh, in my time, both at the FBI and CIA, and most specifically my time as director of NCSC, this was our big month of the year, right? If you are in the security and or counterintelligence business or counterterrorism business, the Insider Threat Month is the, the pinnacle of all the months of themes. And as much as we want to look at threats to people, data, systems, countries uh, around the gamut with cyber and ransomware, nothing compares to the threat and damage caused by an insider threat. It's above and beyond anything. It always has been, always will be. And I think it's yeah. got um, misplaced over the, over the years in terms of what it means. But I think for me personally, this was always the big month and we always probably would have mm-hmm. 40 or 50 events in a, in a 29-day month. So, Bill, um, I, have, I have a question for you. You just jogged like a thought in my mind in a good way, I, I think. So we spend so much time talking about cybersecurity. We, we spend so much money on cybersecurity. And when you say that insider threat is the bigger cost to our nation, society, nations, and please, if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, stop me. 
Why do you think we can't get that traction around insider threat? I mean, we have sensationalized cases, right? We've got right. Aldrich Ames, we've got Snowden. You can go back to the atomic bomb during and after World War II. I mean, there are some really juicy, I, mean, I hate to even use the word, but there, there's some stories that people can relate to. Right. Why do you think that is? Well, there are, and there are more, there's hundreds of stories. And if you just go on the DOJ website, look at economic espionage. You mentioned their government ones. The private sector have, probably has 10x of those, right? So, but they're sometimes not all classified in the vernacular of insider threats, mm, right? So okay. I think I think the, the, the phrase insider threat has a connotation to different people. It could mm. be the, the, the Hans and the Ames, you know, the, the individuals in the last decade, you know, WikiLeaks, you know, there's a whole bunch. Or they could be the Aaron Alexis's, the Ford Hoods, the Pensacola's, right? right. Um, terrorists. At the end of the day, we failed at the marketing of what an insider threat is. Mm -hmm. We were so worried about the mitigation capabilities, uh, the UAM, the training, the, the privileged users, the removable hard drives, because of we were victims of, we've lost the feel for the marketing of what are we trying to prevent? And what I've been using since 2012, and it's corny, but it works for me, is that individual who tomorrow will come to your workplace to do bad things. And those bad things could be a bomb in the cafeteria, it could be shooting, it could be a, a suicide, a, right. it could be a murder-suicide, it could be a thumb drive, it could be downloading on purpose or clicking a link, the whole gamut. But again, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, Eric and Rachel, it's about a human being, right? Mm -hmm. It's the human dynamics, social behavior, keyboard behavior, and the ability or inability for the government or company to prevent that person from doing bad things mm -hmm. that they're bound to do. That, I don't think me, that's corny at all. But, that, no. but that's not the message that's been, all the insider threat vernacular has been in response to an event, right? right? And then again, from a guy who I think in preparation for this, I have 36 congressional hearings just on insider threat from three different agencies. Wow. And you run the gamut. So, and every single one of them has been a different rabbit hole, a different lane and a highway, but missing the umbrella aspect of a human being. And, and we'll talk more about where, where we still lack in a lot of it, but we've been so focused on the behavioral analytics of things that people do and not about what's in their head. Right. And there's right. a rationale for that. And, and to Rachel's point, my business now in the last couple of years, which I'm predicated in the board of director space and the CEO space, I found that to be somewhat true, but they're more willing to make a decision to say, oh, we can mitigate this by doing A, B, and C, and it's just going to cost me X, and they do it. That's the lack of leadership we've had in the government for decades. Crazy, crazy, crazy to me. It, it's there. There's so many good examples, and we still can't pull it together. I, I love your definition. I think it's very simple. I think it's relatable. Yeah. And I think we have a real problem here. And, and Eric, I think from the definition of preventing that individual from coming in tomorrow and doing bad things, 80% of that can be done with behavioral analytics in the workplace. Mm -hmm. From where you log into your building, your cat card, or all the way up to your first keystroke, where you log in, what websites you go to, any kind of deviation, standard deviation from the norm of your behavior at work, that's 80% of it. The most damaging 20% is what we have no capability of uncovering, is what's the state of your mind. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I think that's yes. the part we're missing. But that is also the part that private sector is more than willing to get to. The behavioral analytics mm -hmm. in your mind and what your thought process is. There's all kinds of cool capabilities out there on retinal capability. And that's the space the government has never wanted to go down that road.
Rachel, could you imagine private industry trying to read my mind? I I mean, we could break a company with that exercise. If I was a POC, a proof of concept, oh boy. Hey, Eric, let me just give you just an anecdote because you're probably thinking, listeners are thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Excuse my language. But for instance, in the insider threat space in the federal government, and we'll stay in the intelligence community and Department of Defense where they have the highest levels of capabilities and, and success rates. Okay. There is no connectivity to an employee-supervisory relationship and feedback that connects to the security apparatus of that, of that agency. Oh, oh, well, wait a minute. Let me, let's Think make sure that. we understand this. So I report to a manager. My manager does employee evaluation reports. You name it on me. Mm-hmm. I, I make a mistake. They may counsel me, put it in my HR record. You're saying there is no connection between that and the insider threat team. That's correct. My security wow. file. Seriously? Unless that supervisor makes an affirmative move to wake up one day and say, wow, I think Eric might be a security risk to our company. I'm going to go find out who I report this to. And he does it. If that's not the case, there is no business process for that to happen in the government or even in the intelligence community. We tried to make this uh, in 2018 and beyond part of the process when we did Trust the Workforce 2.0. Right, right. And we were disallowed by the GS14 and 15, you know, attorneys who say, mm-hmm. no, it's a violation of privacy. You need to keep HR separate from security. That's the baseline of our, I would say, our failures over time in the government is wow. not including human resources, right? And, wow. and if, if you bear with me for a second, as part of our Trust the Workforce 2.0 program, you know, we worked in partnership with the Brits, and the Canadians, Australians to look at key indicators of why and people go bad, employees right. go bad. Often than not, all five of the five I countries came up with, you know, they're all over the map. But the one key indicator was that employee who over an 18 month period did not get promoted two or more times was mm-hmm. often than not the primary indicator or predicate for that person going bad. There's not a security organization in the world that gets that data. I, I'm just, I'm blown away having a security clearance, right? The, just the financial disclosure paperwork. I mean, it's it's mind blowing, Rachel. Okay. I, I don't think you've ever seen it, but no. the amount of data you have to put in and like listing out things like art and all of your financial records and the likelihood that you forget something is super high, by the way, because I, I bet a lot. I forgot two stepbrothers on my disclosure, my SF-86 at one point too, which they reminded me of. But that's a different story. But the amount of disclosure is incredible. And they don't even look at something that the organization owns. I mean, the organization uh-huh. owns my employee evaluation form, right. right? the feedback. It's owned by the organization. My financial data isn't. Where I'm spending money, what I'm spending right. it on, what I'm doing isn't. You would think that would be the bigger privacy risk. No, right. no, they uh, the federal government and I'll say the federal government, particularly in the intelligence community, Department of Defense, it's even a bigger issue in the non-Title 50 organizations. That sanctity of employee boss relationship right. is almost unbreakable. Right? right. And so where you have in the big three agencies, you know, the big five that are like really into insider threats, you have a hub where you will have a representative from human resources in the insider threat hub. But there's not a data stream where right. you could have AI built against that or you could have analysts looking to say, well, you know what? Eric, for 10 years, was getting fives across his portfolio. The last three years, he's gotten a four, two threes in this past year. Now he's on a, a performance one. improvement plan. That's a key indicator of something going awry. And that does not get sent to security teams or apparatus. Are you reading my employee reviews, by the way, Bill? Those are pretty <laughs> accurate. 
just trolling the, the internet, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Yeah, that that is bizarre. What do you think, Rachel? No, it's it's fascinating. You know the the gaps that you find that just kind of don't seem to make sense. Yeah. So how how do you address that? I mean, how do you try to start making connections? Yeah, great question. It's a marketing issue, right? So to me, uh, it has been. If you look at what are we trying to achieve here, if you just step back, you're trying to achieve identifying potential bad actors in any space. Right. Well, if if then that becomes a human resources issue, right? You're trying to help individuals who are needing help. It becomes a tool for the human resources ecosystem. But they won't, for the most part, won't let you in that ecosystem, right? At the end of the day, they look at it as we're trying to catch a spy or stop a terrorist or prevent a shooting. To me, it's much more than that, right? It's it's an enabling enabling factor to help employees who might need employee assistance programs who are are searching out and begging for help. Yes. This program can really be that cursor. And, And I think we've talked about this earlier on the call. Uh, when you see success stories or reports of identification of bad actors or potential suicides prevented, right. that's because they have a robust insert of program available to them that, wow. that also is masked, uh, but it, because it's part of a human resources program. So right. I think that's the bigger picture. If you're trying to protect employees and their surroundings and other employees, that's the right marketing space. But the security folks... Right. Don't tend to do that, right? It's really bifurcating the government from security's way over here and, and HR. HR's way over there. Right. So if I'm reporting to Rachel and she's looking at me and saying, hey, you're off, Eric, but you're really off today or this week, or I've noticed a change in pattern. What you're saying is if from an insider threat perspective, if we're in the government, they may detect my behavior change using systems that are that exist. But there's really nowhere to go in most cases for Rachel as my manager if she detects abnormal behavior. That's correct. Two aspects of this that I think are germane to our conversation. Number one, there is no formalized process for Rachel to click a button and say, hey, right. I not only do I see a change in Eric's workload and productivity, but he just looks disheveled, right? He's yeah. coming in late. He never used to come in late. And you know, the office scuttlebutt is that maybe his wife might've left him, right? right. Or his kid has a special need. He right. needs need. There's no place for Rachel to even report all that. Mm-mm. Number one. Number two is, Rachel's not qualified to evaluate all those things and put them in the bucket of potential harm. Right. Right. She's, right. That's about, a, she's not qualified. She's not You're qualified. absolutely right. <laughs> and, and, and my argument is if someone, she gave that information to a security apparatus, they're more qualified to see key indicators right. and then check other parts of your portfolio to say, okay. oh yeah, you know what we see here, he's in bankruptcy. He filed for bankruptcy. That's a problem, right? Rachel mm-hmm. might not know that because she's your right. boss. So and the, and, and the systems aren't linked either. They're not linked, right? And they're and and they, they clearly need to be linked, right? But also, who has the ability? And this is my argument here: is we don't need sophisticated AI. It might right. help, but we just need someone to have eyes on looking at Eric's portfolio. And then when you add in Rachel's assessment, right. you're like, wow, okay, let's get in front of Eric. Let's exactly. get him some EAP help. Let's get him a counselor. Let's get him a defensive brief. And whoa, hold, time out. Wait a minute. Do we just see here? That in the last six months, he traveled overseas four times, but only reported it once. Right. And then, wait, he's got two SCIF violations that are in this other file. It's the aggregated of all that data that has the best ability to identify a risk in person, you know, a, a total, totality of the risk of Eric, yeah. when we're not doing the best job of that. Rachel, yeah. how do you feel about that? Well, they want to look at everything about you. Well, 
I'll, I'll say I'm I'm in favor because you you look at the stress that COVID put literally on everybody in, in the world today, the society of being on lockdown. And, and I, I think if you look around, a lot of people are still struggling, um, you know, and there are people in my personal sphere you know, they, sometimes they, they want someone to approach them and, and notice what's going on versus being the person to say, hey, I'm not okay. You know, um, and sometimes I, I, think, I, I think that could be helpful in a lot of ways for, um, for a lot of people out there, you know, um, even just in generally, right, in, in addition to the, the business aspects. So, Rachel, here's the counter narrative for you, right? So let's play this out. You see, okay. you do see some lack of productivity and changing Eric, the way he dresses, the way he looks, so Tommy's coming in and he's just not been effective and you report it to security. Right. What's Eric's response, right? Now his reporting no, period exactly. is up in October and he gets another lower rating, right? Now he's filed an EEO grievance against you. 100%, right? yeah. So Damn right. That, that is the circle of where I would say, I say this all the time, that's where the GS14 and 15 government attorneys get involved and right. say, we don't want to go down this road, right? So It's a slippery slope, it's a, 100%. It's, a, it's an immediate okay. slope, right? It's, right. And it's, it's guaranteed to be there. So got it. But if we don't go down this slope, Bill, give us a good story. Like, give us an example where, and we don't need names necessarily, although they do make it juicy. Give us an example where we, we could, if we had gone down this slope, we could have avoided tragedy. We could have avoided grave harm to the United States of America. You know, give us an example. Because we didn't go down there, we're in trouble. We don't, sure have have enough time. we don't have time to give you all these examples in my mind, but I'll give you just a few scenarios, right? Yes. So in our Trust the Workforce 2.0 construction and working with the U.S. government and the Five Eyes, we've never saw a scenario where after the fact, the supervisor didn't say, I saw all these indicators. You should just ask me, right? So that's right. never not happened, right? right. Going so back to I just want to translate. The supervisor, in this case, Rachel, she sees that I'm off. Yeah. She sees the indicators. She has nowhere to go. But in every example yeah. you're talking about, the supervisors know. And, and where it gets even more complicated okay. is you report to Rachel, but you're a contractor, Oof. right? So not only is Rachel seeing this, but your contractor supervisor, or program manager is seeing you right. being off as well. So you have two managers seeing Eric awry. So then Eric goes and does something bad. And you, know, you have two supervisors in the chain of command saying, well, geez, yeah, we saw this in Eric for the last six months. We, we, somebody asked me, I would have told them that right. Eric was looking this space. So, I, so you can go back to Aaron Alexis in Navy Yard, biggest case there where multiple supervisors ha have identified him as a problem. You go to Snowden, you go to Manning, all the big name ones, right? right. And then you go right. to the latest case with the CIA officer. There are a dime a dozen of these situations. And then every single, you go back to Hanson and Ames. The supervisor's like, nobody asked me, but I would have told you. They both had drinking problems, financial problems, right. all the key indicators. But where this is more germane to me, Rachel and Eric, is my time now in the private sector, it's that story times 100 in the private right. sector. Okay. In a, Agreed. In a, and I think they're like really, they're where the government was in 2011 when it comes to insider threat. Because they, they hear that, they think corporate espionage, someone's stealing my IP to sell it to China or to Coca-Cola. But it's more right. than that, right? And I think that's where we're, but the difference is they're more willing to use awesome and effective tools to combat this where the government is not. My experience actually is they don't think of it from an industry historically, going back five, 10 years, the commercial industry hasn't looked at IP theft. We've been really good at transferring it to China, transferring it to other nations, and they don't think of it that way. 
I mean, I've worked with customers. My teams have worked with customers where we've said, you have a problem, right? You know, research data around medical research. Well, you have a China problem. Who's got the biggest cancer problem in the world? China. Mm -hmm. Who's interested in your information? We're seeing it right here. And and they don't think that way in many cases. No. So, Eric, two things here. Just imagine the Rachel uh, scenario we just went through as your boss. So in UK and Australia, they go one step further. They go to peers. Oh, can you imagine? I like that. Could you imagine the U.S. and a government agency, your the ability of your peer to report you? No. Right. Just that's the mindset. So on top of that, the Australians and the Brits have a great program called the ASA. We tried to adopt this in 2019 and we failed miserably. But it's called the Annual Supervisory Assessment. Right. So. Instead of getting this done every five years on a a reevaluation of your security clearance, it happens every year when the supervisor gets 10 questions about your makeup and your change. And that supervisor Mm -hmm. gets to do a, you know, 10 question, multiple choice thing. And that goes to the security folks, separate and distinct from your annual performance because it's done on your birthday. Right. So it's just about you. And it's the same 10 questions you get in a periodic reinvestigation. We could not get that through because of the privacy and civil liberty attorneys. Right. Nobody wants but, bad news on their birthday. No, no, yeah, nobody <laughs> wants any kind of information. And the Australians and the Brits will tell you it's their number one key indicator of risk is that supervisory assessment. I'm, I'm just thinking through that. I mean, that makes me uncomfortable thinking about it. Like yes. if I had to rank my employees and do I have any that show any signs, you could be in a very difficult, challenged position there. Right. Now, take it one step further. The argument, my aspect is, Eric, you shouldn't be alone in that position to make those judgments on your own without viable training, yeah, without, right. without training, right? right there needs right. to be, there needs to be viable, comprehensive training for Rachel and Eric to be able to say, here are the key indicators. Here's what to look out for. And let's not go crazy here, right? Yes. But full well yes. understanding when you click that button to submit concern, you know, there are ramifications and yes. harmlessness when it comes to performance yes. evaluation and EEO issues. It's complicated. will follow you around. Yeah, exactly. Right. But it is it is almost similar to the questioning you get if somebody puts you down on, on their security application, right? The SF-86 as a neighbor or a reference or, or an employer. We will have a an investigator come in and talk to you. They'll ask you questions. Does everything appear? I don't want to go into the questions, but does everything mm-hmm. appear normal? Have you seen any, any odd behaviors? Right. You know, things like we you have know, strange times of day, strange people. They will ask questions. And, and if you modify those questions for a supervisor or a peer group, that's probably a comparable. It's the same thing. We just ch- we decided to take, not do it every five years, but to do it every year. Right. And, and right. we got great data. You know, the whole world like more data. I, I think you turned me. Australians and the Brits do it very successfully. Right. And the Australians, if the Australian government, which is smaller scale wise, could say right. it's the number one key indicator of risk. We should at least pilot the program, which we did. We had successful pilots and we continue nice. to do that. But at the end of the day, our government and our culture, it's all, this is all about culture, our right. privacy and civil liberties, liberties is still superseding the need for a secure workplace. And COVID made that times 10. Yeah. And we've seen a number of examples lately. The Navy Yard, we've seen Pensacola where a non-secure workplace or a workplace where we just didn't catch somebody who had obviously issues has resulted in grave harm to to people we care about. Correct. And if we look at Pensacola, same church, different pew, 
But if the government, the security apparatus, were able to identify or look at social media, you could have identified and prevented that before it happened, right? But we're not able to do that because we live in the greatest democracy ever. And law enforcement or security can't search your social media. But if we could have, we could have prevented that, right? So there's different layers to this and how Mm -hmm. far will we willing to go, you know, but my argument is if you have a top secret clearance or you have a security clearance, you've waived all your rights. Right. Right. So, well, that's that's, my perspective. I agree. But but that's not the perspective of the majority of the GS 14 to 15 attorneys Mm -hmm. in the U.S. government. So, in fact, you you literally waive your rights when you sign the paperwork. You know, when you come to work and you log on and the banners right there, the banner is the banner. Right. Right. So everything you type is now the ownership for monitoring 24 seven. But still, you have attorneys in DOD, as we know, is still resisting a lot of that. Right. Because. Uh, but at the end of the day, so we find ourselves in a place where we have event after event after event and then going backwards to say, well, why didn't we fix this in 2010 and 11 and 15 and 16 and 18, right? Because we all have great policies. Yeah. Even, you know, in my old shop, we, we would write policies on security clearance uh, reform. We would issue the policy, but it was up to the individual agencies to adopt that policy. There was no mandate. So reciprocity becomes an issue. Right. And then what you end up happening is you have a bad actor who works for a company and the host agency says, you know what? We don't like Eric. Eric just isn't fit for our culture. And he's had three security violations. So send him back to his company. This this company then puts him on another contract, another agency. Right. That's the whole construct of, you know, other people that we could talk about in, in this space that have gone bad. Uh, and then the containment becomes the answer. How do we contain the badness? So, we can contain or we can deal with national secrets that have been lost, but you can't contain the loss of human life. Right. Can't contain that, right? And we, if we have viable solutions to prevent that, then it's on us and we should be held accountable for not employing those solutions. Now, when it works, though, we do save lives. We, we do save critical intellectual property. I, I remember – I don't remember you, – you probably know, Bill the, – the Coast Guard incident with uh, Lieutenant Hassan. Yep. Right. Somehow the, yep. the, the Coast Guard was able to stop him. I, I just remember vividly from the yes. front page of the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, the, the arsenal that federal investigators pulled out of, I think it was his house. It might have been a storage container or something. And the thoughts that went through my head were, were like, this would have been a massive tragedy. And he was stopped. There's also proof that when the system works, it's able to prevent harm to the country to our right. two people. All the system worked, and we had some ad hoc successes there. Not only did you have a viable uh, UAM program on, on Mr. Hassan, but you had peer groups around him and a supervisor identifying problems as well, right? So mm-hmm. it was everything that should work, worked perfectly, and the Coast Guard has always been, and they should be commended for having a viable insider threat hub that mm-hmm. merged those things together to identify him and prevent lives, right? And then mm-hmm. the government puts out paperwork every year about the amount of suicides prevented And the amount of employee work that's been interceded to prevent harm to self or others, where we fail at that is bad marketing, right? We just don't have a viable marketing capability to show why this stuff works, specifically on, you know, monitoring employees' keyboard strokes because they've been so successful, but we have to be more willing to declassify this stuff, not name people, and show the success rate where we're giving people the help they need when they need it. What do you think works better, Rachel? And, and I, I don't know the answer, the, the detecting or the preventing. And I, I suspect you need both hand in hand. Well, I would imagine you would 
you would need both hand in hand. But it's, I, I think kind of coming back to your your point about the marketing though, Bill, it's almost like insider threats become like a bad word, you know, like we got to whisper it when we talk about it versus really looking at it holistically, I think is is what we're talking about here. Because, um, you know, you can't prevent everything, but when you can detect something, right, and, and get ahead of it, then you could have a conversation or you could do other things to kind of, you know, mitigate. Um and it's it's what a hard problem to to try to solve because there's just no no easy answer and no matter what the path is I think somebody's going to feel infringed perhaps I agree Rachel and Eric to your point I my consideration to be in this space for two decades detection is prevention right and, and yeah. if you're not if you're not capable of detecting you're not doing uh, due diligence right. and preventing it's a good point so you know in research I was looking at you know sol- soldier sailor airman marine and I guess guardian now. Suicide, harm to self, harm to others came up a lot. And I, I was blown away. The government actually tracks in a quarterly and annual suicide prevention office, the, the Defense Suicide Prevention Office tracks. And, and, and we have almost 100 serving, 70 active duty in Q1, 18 reserve, and 20 National Guard members that took their own life in the quarter. And they track quarter after quarter, year over year, we're looking at almost 400 service members take their own life every year, Bill. I mean, what are we doing about that? I just, these people sign up to serve this country. And I, I just, I feel this pain as a veteran. Like we haven't signed up to help them, to protect them, to deal with the enhanced issues, challenges, concerns they have. I mean, what are we doing? I think it's horrible. I think those numbers are not all preventable, but if we can prevent one, it's worth every try, right? And I think we have an obligation, and if you take the military service members who are raising their hand to protect this nation, we owe them every capability that we, we know to be able to help them identify a person in need so they can get the help. Secondarily, you multiply that times law enforcement and the medical community right now who's having still issues with COVID, we have capabilities to prevent and identify those individuals who are in need. We should, we should be held accountable if we're not doing it, right. and to me, it's a three-step process. For every one of those individuals, I want to go to their supervisor and say, what did you see about this individual? We have right. to train managers and supervisors when we have to hold them harmless. We cannot put them in a position to be afraid to report stuff because they're worried about being sued. Right. So we have to give a little hold harmless and give them training to identify. Because if we just save one of those 400 or God forbid 50 of them, which I think we right. can, then it's worth every effort to do so. Who owns the problem? the agency for which those individuals work, right? Because in the DOD ecosystem, and, and I don't want to beat up on DOD here, but they kind of deserve it. You have hundreds of incident threat programs. Each combatant command has their own program, their own principal leader. So we have, you know, in the insider threat program, there's three key areas. You got to have a, a senior leader, right? You have to have someone who owns the program. You got to have training and a policy, and then you got to have some capability to monitor something. Well, in DOD, every single part of DOD is different. Right. There's no centralized. Right. There's an there's an analytical center that takes that desperate data in. But you might have a combatant command at PACOM that's light light years ahead of where maybe someone is in after command, as, as well as even inside the, the Pentagon. You know, some some services have better programs than others. To me, that there should be all ships should be floating at the same level. We should put the same effort and the same capability and awareness on the Insider Threat program, and then also put the same tools that we have. Right. Service 
A, should not be using tools that are superior than service, service B mm-hmm. is because their commander, you know, is, is a curmudgeon and doesn't want to modernize or, right. you know, invade privacy of their soldiers. That's nonsense. They shouldn't have that authority to do that. And I think that's where DOD loses some ground is the disparity of which they are across the ecosystem and no organization can take the ball and move with it. Not without effort the last decade. Don't get me wrong. It's been plenty of effort, but no one owns the program. No one owns the problem in DOD. That is a recipe for failure. Right. In anything in life. If you don't have a problem owner. Well, if you're a PACOM commander, you own the problem in PACOM, right? Right. Is that PACOM commander a senior leader to insider threat? Do they know much right. about it? Right. And then who is their go-to, right? right. Do, how do they get data from there to the DITMAC, which is in DOD analyzing mm-hmm. the data? What data is going from there? And what is that leader mandating women and men and under his command to report, right? Versus the commander in STRATCOM or any other command. There's no consistency across the board for DOD. I think DCSA tries to drive some of those solutions to get desperate data to the DITMAC. But what I've seen the last four or five years is I think a problem that we're going to spend a decade dealing with. There's so much data now, it becomes noise. And when you say DCSA, you're talking Mm -hmm. defense, counterintelligence, and security Security agency. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's kind of centralized there. They, they do they do the security clearance paperwork. They do security clearance. They do counterintelligence mm-hmm. advisement inform, right. informing of the clear defense contractors, and they own the DITMAC. They own the the, the insider threat management analytics center. They own that as well. So they are kind okay. of the gatekeepers of of the outcome of the data, right? But there's so much data coming in right now. I'm not sure we're capable of training enough people to identify what's what dials to turn up and turn down and what's hot, what's not, right? And I think some agencies right. do that better than others, but we don't have a consistency uh, of where that lies in the defense department. And as you said earlier in the conversation, they don't they don't own the HR data. That's probably not even being, well, it's being collected, but it's not connected to anything. Correct. So, so Eric, to our, we'll use our same scenario for all these points. You're doing your job effectively. You're working for a DOD element. And you that's questionable, like, but go on. I'm just giving you a benefit of doubt here, right? Um, in the last two years, you've applied, you have, you've applied for a promotion seven times and you've gotten none of them. That should be at least an indicator to the security apparatuses, right? Oftentimes you could apply for those jobs and Rachel won't even know as a supervisor that you've applied for those jobs. So who knows? Just some little database in human resources, the only a organization that knows that you have seven applications of which you've gotten none of those jobs. That is a key indicator that somehow... We need to get that data. It's just a number. It's a data point in security, right. but it's a viable one to say, okay, Eric might be susceptible to really being disenfranchised here in this right. organization. Let's compare that. Let's put it with the rest of his profile and see if right. we could identify an idea to go have a conversation with Eric. Right. Simple stuff. Talk to us, Rachel. Yeah, I'm processing. I'm processing. It's, this, is, this is a lot to process. It's such a hard problem to, to fix. You know, it's so key. Commercial, government, it matters, though. It really does. And, you know, I I guess I wonder, is part of it, you know, Bill, I'd love your perspective here. I mean, is it a matter of do we as the employees, you know, those of us who are okay with it? You know what I mean? Like I I I opt in. I opt in for you to kind of check on me because, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, it protects me as well, right? I mean, let's say that you guys are tracking my keystrokes and I don't know, somebody fished me or something like that, then you've got a record of things as well. Um, But I mean, is that 
a way to start moving forward a little bit or would anybody opt in? I think I would opt in, but yeah, you know. <laughs> it's a great, honest question, but the answer is no, right? It's, it has to be a programmatic effort. You know, right. we, we now have in, in the government, you know, the, the office of director of national intelligence has now what's called continuous evaluation. So right. we got rid of the periodic right. investigations. So you're being continually eva- evaluated every month. There's 3.9 million people in that system, right? So it's an automated system that has red flags, and that says, okay, this is interesting. So that's phase A. It took eight years to get that process moving from policy to the legal hoops to multiple administrations and then build the system to house it and spit out the data to the desperate agencies, right? That's the slowness and lethargic mindset of the government. But it now works perfectly. But the, the end of that stream, Rachel, is so we have key indicators on Eric that identify foreign travel, maybe reported, maybe not. He's two police interventions in the last month, one at his home. Uh, down from also, last quarter. Down from last quarter. We've had uh, also a filing for bankruptcy, and then he has uh, he's defaulted on two medical loans. Right. So that information goes from the ODNI to his home agency for right. them to look at and put value right. on that, right? Right. We need to train those folks first to be able to say, okay, what do we look at here? What is really viable? And then right. how do we go approach Eric? And so that security individual can't be retired Loudoun County police chief, right? There has to be some capability there on the back end. In the private sector, what we're seeing now is these stories and CEOs and CFOs saying, let's get this, let's do it, make it happen. You want to work here? This is what we're going to do, right? And then they put together robust training programs for every manager, right? What to look Mm -hmm. out for. And that you got to be okay with having your, your keystrokes locked and you're going to only use our government, our company cell phone. You are no right. longer allowed to use your private cell phone. So some of my clients right now, they are moving fast and furious wow. to this protective mode saying that, yeah. okay, we can fix this with money and some training and someone who's responsible. Let's do it. Right. And there's an aggressiveness. And what the difference is, and honestly, they don't have to deal with unions and GS14 attorneys who don't want to do this. Right. Right. But they do have Office of General Counsel who will caution. They will have the debates. They will caution. They do caution. But they say, yes, it's legal. And with mm-hmm. the capable, And then what they also ask me, Eric, honestly, their general counsel asked me, benchmark us. Who else in our industry is doing this? Yeah, okay. And if I don't have an NDA, I'll say, well, I can't tell you the name of the company, but four of your equals are, are doing the same thing. Okay, right. we're good. They just want to be the outliers, right? Exactly. So, we, so we've talked about marketing. We've talked about education. It sounds like there needs to be a focus on making it legally okay, right? Getting legal involved, Office of General Counsel again, to say, yes, we can do this at the, I don't know, the, the U.S. government level, right? The Indo-PACOM commander is not going to have as much luck as somebody at the ex- in the executive office would. Right, and I also agree with you, but I think the general counsels who are who, who are for this and do this every day, we need right. to get them in a forum. Right. Hypothetically, we're going to need to get the CIA, FBI, bring NSA, bring them together and have a public forum to talk about right. the pros, the benefits of having a subset of program from a legal perspective and educate. So for two years in a row, the U.S. government's and the intelligence community legal forum, we talked about this, and we brought in yeah. all kinds of attorneys from the non-Title 50 so they can learn about the trials and tribulations that have already occurred legally for the last decade plus. Right. Let's not reinvent this wheel. And I think we need to do right. more of that. And I think in individuals, you know, not only the chief financial officers, how much does this cost? 
but the general counsels, the privacy and civil liberty mm-hmm. authorities and lawyers, and I'll ask the security folks and the HR folks all need to have their verticals in discussion as well as cross yes. conversation yes. to understand us. Because we have trained, we built in 2012, the hub training course, right? So it's basically, how do you provide an insider threat hub in your organization? Right. Who needs to be in that? And I've been doing, I've done that three times now in the private sector. I built them a very viable hub and the general counsels love it because they are co-chair in their hub. And if you put the general counsel as co-chair in the hub, there's immediate buy-in because nothing gets beyond because that. Because they're part of the process. They're part of the process. Right. They're part of the approval process as well. Right. And I think that's the key not to just be advice and counsel. You are part of the approval process. And my argument is if you have the general counsels not only buy in, but you make them a meat eater, you make them a decision maker, your program is going to be very successful. Or or put it in their in their wheelhouse. Like, hey, I want you to run the insider threat program. Yeah, I I haven't seen that being successful because it's not in the writ. Right. And I think they'll say, hey, I'm just an attorney. I want to advise and inform. But you could advise and inform. And where I've seen in my three clients right now, their general counsels are all deputy chairs of the insider threat hub. Okay. Okay. Nice. So in the classified world, we do a lot more and we feel like we can we can intercede on an employee's I'm not going to use the word rights but they're you know we can we can look at what they're doing on their computer you know today we collect more information on what people are doing on their systems in the classified environment than we do the unclass is is that a fair statement uh very fair yes and why do we do that why do we feel it's okay on classified but not unclassified both work systems both in the same business or organization both under the same office of general counsel, why is one better than the other? And and where would you have to, if you had to pick one, where would you rather collect? Uh, Eric, that's a great question. I'll challenge your premise. I don't I don't know if we, the, the world we, believe that to be true. Uh, in my space, uh, I believe both are true, and we've been very successful uh, collecting both, classified and unclassified. There is the discussion that's always been there in the Department of Defense ecosystem, but in the intelligence community, it's just as important and successful on the unclassified side. And I would proffer to you that I know this for a fact, the last, since 2010 in my in this space, every IC organization will tell you all their big cases and their leads come from the unclassified side, right? So the data is on the classified side, but the nefarious activity is always on the unclassified fi- side. And that's where we find the bad actors and bad acting is on the unclassified side all wow. the time. And I would even throw in the unclassified side the chat rooms that every agency has is right. also in that space of what I would call the unclassified realm. So one might actually say the data, the meat, what we really want to get to is on the unclassified. I would so say that for sure. As a, mm-hmm. as a seasoned insider threat, I, 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 the numbers, the data prove it out to be true. Right. That what we identify in the fairest behavior on the unclassified is always what leads us to the biggest and best security violations and counterintelligence cases. Counterintelligence okay. cases are oftentimes found on the unclassified side. Bigger picture though, at the end of the day, it's all about keystroking, right? It's all about your fingers on the keyboard. So if we're monitoring one, we should always be out monitoring everything else. Psychologically, the bad actor thinks they're clear. When they quest that button, they go to the unclassified, Ooh, I could I could type anything I want. I can go to my home email, I can yeah. go to these chat groups, I can go do my criminal behavior, and then click back to secure, oh, I got to behave now, right? So right, right. that's just the human mind. First of all, that's bizarre to me, even thinking about on a government <laughs> computer or a work computer, looking up something that's even a hint risque, but I'm with you. 
Rachel, thoughts? We're coming to the end of our time. No, I just, I, I think it's a conversation we could have probably, you know, for the next 24 hours. I mean, it's just so, it's so you fascinating. Mean, as my manager, you're going to have a conversation with me in the next 24 hours? Or are we still playing, role playing here? No, we're well, not Rachel's role playing. Gonna, she's going to get offline and find out who exactly would I report this to anyway? Like, is there someone out there? Is there a portal exactly. to send this to? Like, that's well, the first thing Well, in this joint, that's true. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I think, Eric, if you think about where you work and, you know, I would ask you just, you know, rhetorically, when I get off this, think about if you were to report one of your employees, how would you go about doing it? Does even your company have that capability to do it? And what are the legal policy right. ramifications? Something to think through that. That's why I tell yeah. the private sector CEOs, think about what this looks like, feels like for the, for the ground level supervisor, right? The middle level supervisor. Yeah. And what are we, our expectations of those? And then I will throw on. Take everything we talked about here, which is really complex stuff, and then put overlay it to where we are right now with the work at home concept. Yeah, wow. Where those individuals aren't being seen every day by the supervisors, right? Or their coworkers, and they're at home, and they're oftentimes lonely, and they're having financial problems, right? And that work from home mentality, and maybe now you can't monitor keystrokes at home, right? So how do we take what we learned for a decade plus, and then overlay that to the new modern working environment ecosystem that we have. That's the future of where we are in insider threat. And I would say that one of the biggest challenges we're going to have. Scary. A lot of opportunity, but very scary. A lot of opportunity for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm glad we're having this conversation though, because if, if we're not, if you're not putting it out there, right. And then it's, it's not going to have the broader conversation and it's never going to get, you know, figured out somehow. And so I'm, I'm really glad that there is an insider threat awareness month because this is really important stuff, if you will, that we should absolutely be digging into and making it a broader conversation. Well, for me, Rachel, yeah. I'll be out and about all, all month doing this all over the United States and in Europe. And my argument to my friends and co-workers in the government is, please be judicious and aggressive in sharing the success stories. Yes, yes. Because right. what I found out in the private sector, if you tell company A the successes of other benchmark companies, they want to do that, exactly. right? Because and then, then you also have the accountability to say, wait a minute, if we don't do this, geez, how do we explain this to our board that we had a capability right. to prevent it and we didn't? And I think that's where the government needs to be more effective yeah. and efficient is bragging about the successes right. of coming to the aid of employees that work for them. It's not just about preventing the, the Pensacola shooting or catching the next wannabe spy. It's about providing resources to employees who have taken the oath and are working for Uncle Sam or in the DOD ecosystem and providing them the health and assistance that, yeah. that we should be providing them because they are serving our country. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that because that, that is important, the, the successes and, you know, the positive outcomes that can come from this. I don't think that's talked about really at all. Uh, I mean, rarely. Yeah. Rarely in what I'm seeing. So. Well, I'm trying to drive this a little bit more behind the scenes on the government contract relationships, right? Because there's a lot of awesomeness that, go, that goes on behind the scenes, mm -hmm. but we're in this cultural of secrets, right? And my right. argument is that if, if you don't want to share your successes, oh my goodness, right? right. Then right. why are we not, why? Like, and don't give me this nonsense. There's a three sentence writer on the contract on page right. 100. I don't want to hear that, right? Yeah. We're obligated to share successes to our, to other contractors, right? So right. It, it, you know, there's 4.1 million people in America that have a security clearance. Wow. Only 650,000 of them work for the government. Wow. So think about that, right? So on, on, there's 1.2 million people that have, let's go back, 1.2 million people that have a 
top secret or higher clearance, right? Mm -hmm. A third of them don't work for the government. So how are we not taking the successes we've learned, even from companies and contractors, and sharing that with each other? to say, hey, we have successes, you know? And Eric, you talked about that report you read from the government on suicides. What if we mandated the contractors we made those same reports? What would those numbers be like? I mean, they'd be higher. I, I have no idea. We've got to fix it though. I mean, that's one where you have to fix it. Right. You do. You and then this goes to a bigger question for you folks in future uh, podcasts on acquisition, the medieval times on acquisition contracts. And, and right. we have to modernize the way we do things and we build out contracts and reporting requirements, especially when human lives and data are on the line. Again, not only just against our foreign nation states, but the workplace environment can be secure if we are willing to talk about the successes of keeping it secure and sharing those successes. And that seems like a no-brainer to me, too. Isn't that, that's something that everyone wants to hear. I I think you should want to brag about all the good things that happen. And then other companies will be more in tune to say, wait a minute, why don't we have that? Right. We we, We don't have that, why not? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I know. But this is so hung up on the numbers. I'm I'm hung up on the numbers and and the amount of intellectual property that our our daughters and sons, our our wives and husbands, our mothers and fathers have spent so much time creating is just flying out the door, which is causing harm to this country. Right. And that's, uh, it's a sad fact. I, I think we need, I think we need some more awareness and some more action. Yeah. I concur 100%. And we're going to spend, we're all going to spend September talking about insider threat awareness and and educating uh, all the specifics to this and not getting in the nitty gritty of the tools, capability, identifying on a UAM process, but why this is important to to provide a service to our fellow employees that work around us every day and are doing their best to make their company or their government organization productive. We owe it to those employees to provide them the services they need. And sometimes what they're calling out for help, we need to be there and help them. Exactly. Agreed. I couldn't end on a more positive note. Like that's what we've got to do. Rachel? Wow. So it's, we've given folks a lot to think about, but it's important. You know, again, I'm I'm so glad we had this conversation, Bill. It's it's really critical that this this happened more often and, you know, kind of and as broadly as possible, because that's the only way that change is ever going to happen. So thank you for your time and and the many, many, many great insights you've provided here. It's been more than welcome, Rachel. Eric, thanks for having me here. It's been a humbling opportunity and great discussion. I enjoyed every minute of it. Absolutely. Keep, Keep fighting the good fight. Yes. This country yes. needs it. They need you, Bill. Thanks, Absolutely. folks. It's been great. We're all on the same team. We're all working in the same in the same same boat, going in the same direction. Absolutely. I love that. So thank you to all of our listeners again for joining us this week and this this awesome conversation. Um and, and don't forget, if you could if you subscribe, you get, you know, episodes with, with amazing people like Bill Evanina right to your email inbox on a Tuesday. Uh, and you never miss it. And you you don't want to miss these. So until next time, everybody, stay safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 